Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast number 16. Today we're talking about the funding challenge for startup founders and new VC models based on old VC models. First, following on from last week's episode, a new development in the $1 trillion business travel market. Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian tech ecosystem. Okay, so last week we spent some time talking about the trillion-dollar business travel market and how big it was in Asia. And one of the companies that I talked about was something called Metro Residences, right? And Metro Residences was basically, you know, kind of load balancing for service departments like the Ascot and stuff like that. And I thought that was a really interesting business model. And to be fair, in the interim, meaning between last week and this week, I was contacted by a guy who is starting to be is starting a company that's kind of in the middle. It's a company called Pillow and Space, and his feeling is there is a market in between residential or sort of condominiums where people stay on personal travel mm-hmm. and you know um, service apartments like metro residences that sort of have excess inventory and aren't being used for business travel. And one of the things that he told me was for a company like Metro Residences, they're looking for minimum stays of a month. Mm-hmm. And his feeling is there's a massive market for people that are traveling for business on you know two or three days or for three days right. to a week. And that Airbnb doesn't really service that directly. They're more talking to people that are on business travel. I mean, that are on personal travel. You know, I'm going to... Aspen for vacation instead of staying in a hotel. I want to stay in somebody's really high-level condo. And his feeling is in developing markets, so not in developed markets, but in developing markets, there's a place for something like Pillow and Space that says you're only going to be in Manila for three days. You don't want to stay at a hotel because hotels don't provide you anymore with the service that you expect and they're too expensive. Why not stay in a condo? And this gets right back to a conversation you and I are having a few weeks ago about kind of the professionalization of the platform market, right? In the same way that eBay started with Pez, um, and if Airbnb started with you know sleeping on someone's air mattress, this guy's saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take 200 apartments in a condominium building. I'm going to take it from the developer directly, and I'm going to turn that into a hotel type experience, but better and cheaper. And I just thought that was really interesting. And one of the things he said was that the most active markets for Airbnb are Bangkok and the second most, I mean, is Manila. And the second most active market is Bangkok with 8,600 sort of active properties Hmm. and 8,400 for each one of those markets. So I thought that was just really interesting. And he's... While he's trying to build his own platform, he's also using Agoda and Airbnb as his marketing channel. So he doesn't have to necessarily survive on his own. But I just thought that was an interesting follow-up to something we were talking about last week. This market is going to continuously get disintermediated. And this guy, I thought, had a really good idea. And he's going to keep his costs low because he's outsourcing a lot of the services that he uses, like cleaning and laundry. So whereas a normal Airbnb host has to go out and hire someone like Pillow, which is a company that provides services to Airbnb hosts in the United States, he's going to outsource the whole thing. So any kind of cleaning, any kind of laundry, all that kind of stuff, he's going to go out and third party that thing. It's just his whole business model I thought was really interesting. And he also said 
that the largest costs for businesses, for corporations, are salary for employees and travel. Mm-hmm. So right, what's, so- what's this guy offering that a good business-focused Airbnb host can't offer? What's, what's he sort of Scale. offering? Scale. Right. Right. So he's going to he, what he's he's going to offer scale and he's going to offer consistency. So what he basically what he's saying is, you stay at an apartment in Manila. I'm going to give you the exact same um, and level of service and consistency that you'd get at a really great hotel, but at a at a fraction of the cost. And and I'll give you the same exact experience when you go to Bangkok on your business trip. So if you fly into Asia, excuse me, and you fly to Manila first, stay there for three days, you go to Bangkok to talk to your other people or your other clients, you're going to get the same level of service and the same level of consistency. Mm. And from a host perspective, he says that his platform will give you 60% more income. And again, that's what they claim, whether that's true or not, we'll have to see in practice. Than um, than other platforms because of the way they manage it, the level of consistency they have, and because of their outsourcing of all the other stuff, right? So, if you're a normal Airbnb host in Southeast Asia, it's likely that you're managing the cleaning, mm. the laundry, and all the other stuff on your own. He's going to take care of that for you as well, right? Because there's a big market of Airbnb hosts who don't want to be really hands on, do they? I suppose if Pillow and Space were to approach them, they can say, "Hey, look, we'll take this off your hands." You provide this minimum level, we'll provide everything else on top, and we'll give you some kind of guaranteed income in return, right? Is that the kind of thing that they would be doing for these guys in Airbnb? That's exactly what he's doing, and it's that guaranteed income that really comes in handy, right? Because that's just a, that's a marketing cost for him. But the other thing that they're doing as well is, while they are building their own website and they are building their own brand, right? PNS Pill and Space is going to be a brand. But that brand is going to sit on other people's platforms and use their marketing muscle to promote his own brand. In a way, it's kind of brilliant, right? Mm. Because you could say, I'm going to go out and create a platform that competes with Airbnb. And he's saying, I don't want to compete with them at all. Like, don't compete with them. I want to live inside their ecosystem, but use their ecosystem to promote my brand. And again, this is the professionalization that we talked about writ large if it can work, right? Yeah, yeah. And you compare that to, I mean, we talked about food delivery a number of times on this show. Mm-hmm. And I thought what's kind of interesting about this market, this business travel market, there, there's enough bandwidth in the market, market to enable these players, right? It's not a market where, you know, there's no margins. So everybody's kind of nickeling and diming to trying to make a bit of profit. There's enough margin in this market to enable you know, a number of players to offer different kind of levels of service on top of each other, right? Which is great. Absolutely. That allows the kind of evolution, isn't it? Absolutely. Right. So they're not trying to take the, a, a smaller and smaller piece of a, of a dying market. They're trying to take a bigger and bigger piece of a growing market. I, I love that business platform idea for this. Yeah, yeah. Pillow and Space. Yeah, I liked it. And again, it was just really great follow-up to what we had already yeah. spoken about last week. So very interesting in my mind. Nice find. What are we talking about this week, Michael? So I want to talk about funding. I mean, I know we've talked about this from different angles, and we'll probably continue to talk about it from different angles. But this is something that just keeps coming back and back to me um, in different incarnations. And while I don't really want to talk about individual companies by name per se, mm. I do just want to share some experiences and, and, and really ask questions and have a conversation with you about why you think certain things happen, right? 
So let's talk first of all about, I was talking to a company today about a, a gentleman, a founder who wanted to raise a certain amount of money for a business that had no product and um, no clients yet. And they wanted to raise a very large amount of money, which was going to give them a large valuation. Let's just say as an example, they wanted to raise a million dollars for 10% of the company, which, you know, simple math says it's going to be a $10 million valuation. Right. Right. And I, I asked the founder, I said, just can you tell me how you got to that valuation number? And I think he went at it the completely backwards way. He was like, well, I need this to build this type of product and do these types of things. And I said, yeah, but do you think that's a realistic raise? In other words, if you were on the other side of the table, would you give yourself a million dollars at that price? And he was, he said, no, I wouldn't. And I said, look, right. what I really think you need to do is go back and reevaluate, right, where you're spending all this money and get to a place where you can have clients, have a product in the market, and then go out and raise the balance of that money at what's likely going to be a higher valuation. And the other thing we did was we went back and we looked at um, some of the embedded costs in his business model. And to be fair, for this particular company, I had never seen, so like in the past five years, I've not seen a founder create a business plan so detailed. Hmm. Really, I was so impressed with the the technical aspect of the business plan was completely thought out. The um, the costs were completely thought out. I thought they were all wrong, and I did go over that with them today. But it was so detailed and so impressive that it actually made it easy to go through and say, let's take a look at these things and let's go through and do it. But I really wonder why they had a valuation that was so high, that was mm. so unrealistic, and a raise that was high, again, for a company in Southeast Asia that – um, had no, had nothing delivered yet, right? And I'm just wondering, like, what your what your opinion is there, and why you think people are doing this. And I can give you my opinion as well. Right, right. And then I can also run through like what my advice was to them, and how that the meeting ended in a way that was very different than the way the meeting started. To be hmm. fair. So, what's the background here? Does this guy have a name? Does he have a reputation? He's not an Elon Musk, but no, right? So no, he's. he's 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 an experienced business guy with an incredibly strong technical team. Uh-huh. Right. So the market that they're trying to address is a place where they have really deep experience and really deep tech experience. Um, you know, and they've done a lot of work on trying to build out a product, but I just don't think they, and they're not kids either, right? They're not like 22 year olds. Um, they're not in their fifties, but you know, they're old enough to know, but they're just, I think it's one of these things where their concept of what the valuation should be is tied up a little bit in ego Maybe it's tied up a little bit in, and I know it sounds slightly counterintuitive, but conservatism, right? Like we need more money to build this right, type right. of thing, which by definition, you know, algebra says it leads to a higher valuation. Um, but but I, I think, go ahead. Do you think in this environment, in this climate, that VCs would entertain that kind of pitch where somebody was asking for a million without a product? Is that happening right now? Is that out of the park or would people say, yeah, okay, let's talk to this guy. So what I, so I asked, right. And I said, where have you tried to raise money already? Cause they've been trying to raise money for about three months. Right. And that's another topic that I want to talk about in a, in a little bit. And he said, well, the feedback that I'm getting is that, um, one, we should probably raise less money. And, and, you know, two, that the valuation is probably much too high. And I said, well, look, at least this corroborates what I'm telling you. And here's the way you should address it. You know, one is, Let's go through your 
monthly burn rate. Okay, and let's just take a look at the details. You're hiring, you know, who knows how many people, and what are you paying yourselves? Right. This is a this is a key red flag for me, and I think this right. is something that founders should think about. Right. I want this to be more of like an advice giving as opposed to sort of a piss taking, right? Because I don't think the second is really that useful. But the advice that I was giving was, you know, again, how much are you paying yourself? Well, the CEO is going to earn, let's say, six thousand dollars. The CTO is going to earn similar, and the chief marketing officer is going to earn a similar amount of money. And I said, look, basically, what you're telling me is that your top three executives are going to earn one third of the amount of money you're going to spend every month. It's a non-starter. Mm, exactly. Don't you think? Where's the risk? You know, how much skin in the game have these guys got, right? If they're not prepared to take a hit on their own personal expenses. Right. And to be fair, they've already spent some of their own money doing this, right? So whatever the six, eight months is that they've been building out some of the tech and testing some stuff, they spend some of their own money. But investors don't care, mm-hmm. right? I've seen this happen already, right? If you're, if you're one third of the monthly burn, they're going to ask you, right? So I, and I went to somebody else today and I said, just in general terms, how much did the CEO of a company that has no product and, and, and no clients earn? And he said to me, nothing. Yeah. Right? Nothing. I don't think you can pay yourself zero because theoretically just, you know, depending on where you're from and where you're living, just the local regulations require you to get paid something. But whatever that something is, you should pay yourself the minimum. Does that become a lot harder when you have an older startup team? I mean, it's okay if you're like in your 20s and you're living at home with your mom and dad, you know, and you don't have so much to lose. But, you know, when you're older and you have family and kids and a mortgage and all that kind of thing then you know you're going into this game with a lot more cost right so you know six thousand is not going to last you too long either right so it's not but to be fair my response to that is and i think most investors response would be i I don't care right exactly like i really don't care and as and as brutal as that sounds that's the reality of the market if you have to give something up in the short term to get something in the long term please go ahead and do that but do not take investors' money to pay yourself a salary to maintain your lifestyle. It's just mm. not It's not right. the way it works, right? It's not what it's there for. It's for the business, not for you, right? Right. You're supposed to. And so, but it was really interesting. There was an actual huge attitude change. And I give this gentleman a lot of credit because at the beginning he said, well, that's what we need to live. And I said, okay, how much do you think I've been paid in the last five years? Right? Because everybody kind of looks at you and thinks like you're living this life of entitlement. And he said, I, I, I don't know. And I said, well, I haven't had a salary in five years. Hmm. Continue to go on because either A, I'm prepared for that, or B, I don't care, or C, I figured out a way to live without having to have a, a, a constant salary. And I think that's the kind of thing you have to be able to do and build into whatever your business model is if you want to exist in the startup world. Hmm. And, and, and like I said, I'll give him a lot of credit because by the time the meeting was over, he said, okay, let me go rework my numbers, talk to my founders, my partners, and we'll figure out a way we can get to a lower raise and to maybe pay ourselves a lower amount of money for maybe slightly more equity retained for ourselves. And it was at least a a good conversation. What kind of conversations are you going to have to have with his team? Is it like, all right, guys, we're going to have to cut our salaries or we're going to have to go through this business plan, pull out all this stuff that we don't need? What needs to happen in that situation? Yeah, I mean, I think you've nailed it. I think you've hit the nail on the head, and that is he's going to have to go back and all of the things that were potentially, right? And remember, I'm not in these meetings, but that were potentially promised or sort of wished for by the teammates are going to have to get cut, and they're going to have to get cut aggressively. 
right? Because the only way you can raise $500,000 or a million dollars is by saying, we're not going to pay ourselves anything. We'll pay ourselves the minimum possible. And we're going to go out and spend all that money on the business. So for six to nine months until we get our first paying customers or we become cash flow neutral, we're going to have to sacrifice. Right. It's just the way it's going to have to be. Exactly. And that, if you're not making the sacrifices, that's a red flag for an investor, right? Because why should they make the sacrifice if you're not Completely. prepared? Completely. In other words, any, the, the, you know, any money that an investor takes out of his pocket to give to you is money that he could spend or she could spend somewhere else, mm. right? And it's that possibility to spend that money somewhere else that says, I'm not going to give you this so you can maintain your lifestyle. I'm going to give you this so you can build a business. And if you're happy to do that, I'm happy to give you some investment money. And I think that's fair. Right. If a startup, just to continue on that theme, something that I've experienced recently, if a startup was to approach an investor and you know, they would take that to the extreme and say, right, okay, we're trying to maintain a minimum burn rate here. So we are both working part time on this business. And they approached an investor for money and said, look, if we can get the money, we'll go full time. Is that something that an investor would consider? Or is there already a red flag because they're not committing 100% to that business when they reach that point? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question, right? Nobody wants to invest in a business where someone's only going to be there part time. And I, I think you've already said that as part of the question. But will they pay themselves more if they're going to be there full time as opposed to part time? Again, I don't think investors really care. I really think the bottom line is as a founder of a company, you need to be so committed to it that you're willing to take a little bit of short term pain. Right. For whatever the long term gain is. And, you know, the other thing that we talked about today was. Over the long period of time, if you really believe you're going to build a large business, right, whether it's a billion-dollar business or a $500 million business, I'm kind of indifferent. But if you really believe you're going to build a large business, you don't care. You should be indifferent to whether you own, you know, 37% of that business by the time you get diluted down or 33% or 34%, right? Those small percentages of a billion dollars don't mean anything. Mm. And that translates directly back to your valuation today. So would you sell 10% of your company or 15% of your company for a $3 million valuation as opposed to a $5 million valuation? I think the answer to that question is yes. Mm. Right, And I hear a lot of questions recently, not just in the region, but in the US, where people say, would you rather take $5 million of dumb money or $500,000 of smart money? And I think the question answers itself. To yeah, be fair, right. the other discussion I was having today as well. Do you think founders are getting too hung up on those valuations? Or are they, right, they rightly so that they're getting it all lined yeah. up before it becomes a problem in the future? I, I, think, I think they've always been kind of hung up on, you know, the bigger my valuation is today, the smarter I'm going to look to my friends and family. Right. And I think there's way too much tied up in that type of thing. And the reality is that you know, you're having a higher valuation today is not really beneficial. As a matter of fact, I think it's the reverse of that. It makes raising money later really hard. Right. It's that ego thing again that you've mentioned already, isn't it? That comes up, <laughs> rears its ugly head. Right. So let's let's move on to that, right? Because I think that's also a really good point and it dovetails really nicely, right? So I, I talk to founders all the time. And, you know, even for founders where I have an official relationship with them and I'm trying to help them raise money, I'm, I'm constantly asking, how are things going in your capital raise? Mm -hmm. How's business growth going? And the answer is never the truth. 
Hmm. I would say 10% of the time I get an answer that's truthful. Meaning, you know what, we're really running up against a brick wall here. We don't know how to grow this business or, you know, we have not been able to raise money. We've been trying to do this for three months and we just have not been able to do it successfully. Right. But it's so rare. And I think the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I've run into at least two, if not three companies over the past six months who I've known for years and I've gone through with them on a regular basis. I meet them at conferences. I meet them in coffee shops. I meet them all over the place and I say to them, you know, tell me, how's your capital raise going? And it doesn't matter if it's a series A, a seed series, a series B, and in some cases even a series C. It's always the same thing. We're right, we're there, we're growing at the proper pace, and we're just about to sign a term sheet. Mm -hmm. And then three months later, I'll, I'll see them again and say, hey, so how did that thing go where you're just about to sign that term sheet? They're like, oh my God, we've completely run out of money. We've got nothing left. Mm -hmm. Can you help me now? Gotcha. And it's really frustrating for me because when I ask somebody a question, how's it going? And I'm not asking for anything in return except just a, a truthful answer. I get really disappointed and really frustrated when the answer is everything's going really well. It kind of reminds me of Pulp Fiction without getting into too much detail about the scenes or, or the situation in the movie. But the idea is, why are you always coming to me before the problem is solved? In other words, why are you coming to me with a gigantic mess when I've been asking you all along, how are things going? Does that make sense? Right. I'm just trying to wonder, I'm wondering what part in Pulp Fiction you're talking about. Are you Harvey Keitel in that or what? We spin exactly. So I'm the wolf, right? <laughs> the fixer. I'm the fixer. I'm the wolf, right? And the idea right. is, you know, I didn't ask you to shoot the guy in the car, right. but now that you have, now you come to me to fix it. I could have disintermediated that entire problem before the guy in the car got shot. And that's kind of what it comes down to, right? I mean, if you look at the notes we have, it's like, why are you waiting until the last minute? Pretty pleased with sugar on top. Right. So but why? In other words, I've been asking you all along, do you need help? And you've been behaving to me as if almost in a way, not, not just for me, but for everybody. I see this happen to a bunch of people, right? As if we're kind of in the way, like, why are you asking me? Right. You must know that you can see the growth in my company. You can see the fact that I'm hiring people. I must be doing amazingly well. Why are you troubling with me? And even I've actually had this response. Look, I'm really too busy right now trying to close this thing to actually answer your questions about whether or not I need help. What prompts that kind of response? I mean, you know, if I was a founder, in that situation, you asked me that question, what kind of response do you want from me? Well, the, the, the answer that I want is, look, fundraising is, is a full-time job and it's the least favorite part of my job. So I, I had a founder today tell me, and this was perfectly crystallized and I love this guy. Okay, he said, in my mind, this is him talking, he said, in my mind, a founder and a CEO has three big jobs, mm -hmm. okay? One is to create and develop the vision for the company. Hard to argue with that. And he says, I love doing that. Two, to build and maintain and to, and to, maintain and to cultivate a great team. I'm still listening, right? Because I think that th those are both great ideas and those are both great things for a founder to focus on. And, and he says, and I love doing that too. He says, I wake up every day and I love like creating and molding and fixing my vision and hiring and molding and building a really fabulous team. I love doing that. He said, and the least favorite part of my job is the third thing that's my responsibility and that's raising money. Hmm. He said, I hate it. And I think that that's part of the reason why most found, and he's done a really good job by the way of raising money to be fair. But in, in most cases, I think most founders ignore the things that they don't like doing. That's hmm. the first reason. 
The second reason is it's so obvious whether you're failing or succeeding, right? In other words, it's hard for someone on the outside to determine whether your team is great or not because they're not in the room with you when you're alone with them, mm-hmm. right? It's like trying to determine whether somebody else is in a good marriage because you can't be alone with the husband and wife when they're alone because otherwise right. you're, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, and the vision part is something that's a little bit amorphous and ambiguous. So you can sit there and change that vision all the time, but you're either raising 500 grand or not. Hmm. And I think that a lot of founders are embarrassed by the fact that it's really difficult. They don't enjoy doing it and they haven't really been that successful. And I think in a couple of these companies, like the planning on the finance side is just so poor because of hubris and also because of embarrassment. Mm-hmm. They'd much rather tell you everything's okay. You know, again, it's like it's like if you attack the cancer today, you're likely to live. If you wait five years, you're much right, more right. Likely to die. And I think it's the exact same thing. If I don't think about it, it's just going to go away. But what causes that? But th- these are entrepreneurs. These are smart guys, right? With you know, often with a lot of street smarts as well. They know this stuff. Is it the environment? Is it the startup culture? Or is it the people that are involved? Why are they? Why do people behave like that in that situation? Yeah, again, I think it's really just, you know, I've been really successful in this, I've been really successful in that, and I cannot admit weakness. I I think that's the whole point is that, you know, weakness is perceived in almost all cases. um, I mean, on not being successful or asking for help is a perception of weakness as opposed to a perception of strength. I mean, I think that a person with self-confidence who's tried to do something and has not had success should be super comfortable saying, I need help. Mm-hmm. And if you run into somebody, whether it's in the supermarket or in a co-working space, or whatever, and you say, hey, how's that capital raise going? And they say, oh, it's going awesome, dude. We're just about there. We're right around the corner. We've got three people looking at it. We've got five term sheets out there, whatever it is. All of that ends up being a lie. And I think the reason why is because they see that as a sign of weakness and not a sign of strength asking for help. Right. And I find that really disappointing. But I mean, I'm trying to think now, I'm trying to defend them a little bit, play devil's advocate. I mean, if I was a founder and I was standing in front of an investor, I'm just wondering what signs of weakness would come across as to that investor. They would pull holes. I mean, we talked about the pitch the other day. You know, you've got to become prepared. You've got to come confident. You know, if I exude any kind of weakness, they would tear me apart. Well, that's the perception, right? I mean, we live in that kind of dragon's den, that shark tank style world where people think that's what's going to happen, right? We do, we do, but here's, here's, the, here's the counter argument to that is, let's say you've raised a seed round, or let's say you're bootstrapping, or you know, you're at whatever stage of capital raising. You need to plan better. You cannot presume that your financial projections are going to succeed in like biblical terms. So mm-hmm. what does that mean? It means, as we talked about earlier, be prepared, right? So have a reserve. In other words, don't wait until you have to make payroll Hmm. to raise your next round of capital. And if you said, well, I expected to have money coming from this source or that source and that didn't come through. And that's why I've waited what it looks like waiting until the last minute really isn't waiting until the last minute. My answer to you is, well, you weren't prepared and you didn't think forward far enough, Hmm. right? And you wouldn't do that in any other part of your business. That's the thing that I try to teach these founders is, again, be prepared. Try to think ahead and try to understand if 
the money that I expected to get from some other source, whether it's business partners or your accounts receivable, whatever it is, doesn't come through, how am I going to fix that problem before it occurs? Mm -hmm. So don't wait until the last minute. It's never, it's never a successful strategy, right? And that's when they come to me and say, okay, now I'm desperate. And that desperation is what comes out as a sign of weakness, right? So if you need help, in other words, if I came to you three, five, or six months ago and says, how's your capital rates going? And six months later, you haven't died yet. It means you had six months of money in the bank or some way to survive for six months. So during that entire period of time, you could have come to me or come to anybody from a position of strength and complete confidence and said, look, I've got four months of money in the bank, five months of money in the bank. Raising money at this stage normally takes somewhere between three and four months. Let's get this done now as opposed to when I'm just about to run out of money. Right. And, and that I've seen happen twice in the last three months. People have come to me and said, whoa, I know I've been telling you things are going okay, but actually all that stuff that I thought was going to come through, whether it's revenue that I expected, which I've seen this happen as well, or I expected to have this high net worth individual write a check, but that didn't come through either, or one of my business partners went on vacation, or it was Golden Week, or it was Songkrat, whatever. It didn't happen. And I actually had a conversation with somebody at the end of last week, and I said, I've been asking you about this for six months. Hmm. And you've come to me now, again, just like the wolf, right? You've come to me now and said, please help me. And I would, actually, I would actually say to you, what looks weaker? What looks, you know, creates that perception of weakness or a sign of weakness more? The kind of last minute desperation or the, look, I've got five, mo five months worth of money in the bank, but I think it's actually prudent for me to start raising money. That's the question that I would ask you and I would ask that. If I was to come to you now as a founder, and say, hey, look, you know, I've got six months of money in the bank. Um, you know, it's, we're not kind of at the, the do or die situation yet. But, you know, some things haven't worked out that I thought would have worked out. Some assumptions that I've made haven't worked out. You know, I thought this money was going to come through. And if you probe a bit more, you might sort of go under the hood of the business a little bit and find out there's a little bit of bullshit there. You know, I thought that this was going to happen. This deal was going to happen. Didn't happen. So maybe there's a bit of a fear there of a founder coming to you and saying that, right? You know, that they may have to admit that there's something wrong or some assumptions were made. I mean, how you like, are you cool with that? Or is there a little bit of, you know, reconciliation that goes on at this point? Completely cool with that, right? In other words, full disclosure to me is always the best way. I mean, I hate to sound really trite, but honesty is the best policy in this case because there was this old commercial, and I may forget the name of the company that did it in the United States, right? But it was a muffler commercial. I think the name of the company was Meineke Mufflers. And anybody who's of a certain age will remember, hmm. you can pay me now or you can pay me later, right? And the idea was you should replace your muffler every two years and it costs you $35. Or you can ruin like your entire internal combustion system and the cleanliness of your entire car and pay me $5,000 like in two years. So – it's this. It's the same idea. At some point, you're going to come to somebody and ask them for help. Why not go when you still have a little bit of a buffer? Right. Again, and and this this kind of again dovetails to a, another topic of like full disclosure. If someone comes to you and says, "Look, I need help," and you say, "Okay, let's run through some details on your company. Where's your company registered? Well, my company is registered in Singapore. Great. What's the shareholding of your company? What does your cap table look like?" You ask the question, right? Because you need to know when you go to other 
potential investors, you want to reflect the truth to them as well. And the answer you get is, well, I'm a, I'm a 70% owner and I've given 30% of my company away to my co-founders. And you say, super. So on your official cap table right now, you're the 70% owner. You have 30% to your other co-founder. Well, not exactly. It's 15-15 for these other two people that are co-founders. Great. And that's what it looks like on the cap table. No, <laughs> we haven't done that yet. It's 100% for me and they'll get 30%. And I said, okay, look, you can't do that though, right? Because when you bring in other investors, they're going to say to you, okay, what does your cap table look like? And you're going to say, I'm a 70% owner and I've given 15 to 15 to these other two people. And they'll say, great. Okay, we, let's do some due diligence. I want to go through your financials and I want to go through your cap table. And it's inconsistent with what you've told them. And then if your answer is, well, we're working on getting that corrected, now you've given them an inconsistency and they're, as always, investors are always looking for a reason to back out. Mm. Almost always. They want to give you the money, but then if they find anything that's inconsistent, they're going to walk away. It's the same thing as waiting until the last minute, right? Why are you waiting until the last minute to get your cap table in shape when it should already be in shape by the time you go to your investors to raise money? Because as soon as they see that inconsistency, they will start looking for other inconsistencies. And in the same way that you know, when you're dating, when you meet friends, when you're playing sports, whatever it is, if you find some inconsistent information, it's going to create doubt hmm. and doubt creates a lack of investment. So is that a common inconsistency that founders haven't worked their cap table out? Or there's a lot of things that are promised, things that are said that haven't yet sort of borne themselves out on the cap table? I see it all the time, actually. And in one particular case, here's what I've seen. Um, I ask the question all the time, right? Mm. Okay, who owns this company? What does the cap table look like? Well, it's owned between me and my co-founder. With the implication of that being 50-50. Right. As you would assume. But it, it feels like a like, – because you've, you've asked the question, right? Who are the owners? Well, I own, I own part and he owns the other part. Okay. So you, you should – and I've started to do this obviously, right? Because it makes sense for me. What is the percentage ownership? Oh, it's 80-20. <laughs> okay, well, can you say that directly? In other words, you know, again, I had a, I had a ninth grade teacher and he always said I should have been a dentist. <laughs> this was a history teacher. And it didn't become clear to me until a month into the course. What he meant was he always felt like he was pulling teeth. Right. So <laughs> he should have been a dentist and said since if he was going to be pulling teeth, he might as well get paid for it. And it's, I feel the same way sometimes. Why am I asking you the follow-on question? Why wouldn't you give me the context and say, I'm an 80% owner, my co-founder is a 20% owner, and we've decided between the two of us to allocate a pro-rata amount of 10% for future employees. But is that indicative of other issues that may exist in the business? I mean, sort of probing around the cap table of a startup, is that a good way of working out whether or not everything else is in line in this business? Or is it just a case of, well... That's just sort of one thing that these guys have overlooked, but everything else is okay. Do you usually find if that's kind of out of shape, usually everything else is out of shape as well? I, I think, you know, inconsistency is the mother of no investment, really. And I think, as you point out, that inconsistency leads to other inconsistencies. And I think deals will completely break down when potential investors, particularly at the seed and sort of pre-series age stage, see that. I mean, it's way worse Right. I mean, look at a company like Theranos, which completely exploded, really, because the entire thing was inconsistent. But people got all kind of caught up in the potential for the company be, to be gigantic. Mm. 
but one inconsistency always leads to another. And I think that investors out here are really starting to pick up on that. And you can say, well, the company split evenly between the two of us or the three of us, but the reality is if it's even slightly different than that, people aren't going to invest money. And again, the founder with whom I met today, we were going through all these little scenarios, right? And I'm asking him all the right questions. And he was the one who gave me this, let's just call it the 80-20 split. And I said, great. If I look at your cap table right now, that's what it looks like? And he said, no. Mm -hmm. And I said, what's the name of the company on the thing? He said, well, that hasn't been changed yet. I had set up a company originally, but we're in the process of changing the name to a new company. And then we're going to split the cap table up this way. I said, look, you can't go to investors with that story. Get that fixed first. And then you can move on. Exactly. That's tough and, though, isn't it? Because I think these guys are just, I mean, I speak a lot to founders and they're just so incredibly busy. And I think they yeah. don't have a spare hour in the day. And that you're talking about going back and doing some paperwork. I know that's how they see it, right? But obviously yeah. it's not paperwork. But No, it's not. It's not. The devil is always in the details. But let's flip the, let's flip the bit a little bit. I'm also dealing with another founder, really early stage, and he has just everything nailed. Everything. Like there's nothing better for me than sitting in a meeting with a founder who's talking to a potential investor and I'm giving them advice, excuse me, and somebody says to him, what does your cap table look like? And he said, here's exactly what it looks like. This lady owns 2%, this guy owns 4%, and I own you know, 94%. Is that what it says on the cap table? Yes. Where is your company incorporated? Singapore. Do you have a sub company and an operating company in the country in which you're a resident? Yes, I do. Everything's set up. And when you give that person advice and they're so prepared, right, and they kind of follow all the steps that you give them by the time they're going out to raise money, particularly at the seed stage, you ask them, like, what have your investors said? And they said, well, they're very impressed with my organization. And I have, I'm trying to raise, let's say, $75,000 and I already have a commitment for 50. I'm just trying to fill out the other 25. And you say, because the normal question there is, what kind of commitment do you have and how strong is that commitment? The answer is, I have two term sheets signed. They're waiting for the other one to come in and then they're going to give me the money. And to be fair, they've actually already offered to give me money. But I said to them, wait, because I can bootstrap this myself until I can find the other person, which I'm very confident I will do. And once I get the full 75, then we can start taking that capital. I have a bank account already set up in Singapore. I have the proper naming for the company and I've got a cap table set up and I've got a director in Singapore. Everything's fine. I want to wait until I get that third commitment. It's perfect. Checks all the boxes for you. It just it, makes it so much easier, right? Right, right. Is, is that without sort of naming any names or giving that, that person's identity away, that kind of startup founder are they from a particular type of background, a particular type of entrepreneur, a particular type of industry, any kind of experience, or are they just kind of all stripes, all different types of entrepreneurs can be like that? I'm just wondering if there's, a, you know, sort of narrowing it down, this type of founder usually is more like that. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I am really opposed to, to making sweeping generalizations. And you know, there's a but coming here, but in this case, I will. <laughs> Well, you're but going to make a sweeping generalization. <laughs> I'm going to make a sweeping generalization right now and go against everything I just said. Right? I mean, isn't this what your dad teaches you? Everything before the but is exactly. not true. <laughs> so everything before that but was not true. So this, the particular founders that I'm, that I'm talking about right now, they've really all come out of a consulting background. And I think part of the reason right. is that they get taught discipline and organization 
writ large because their clients, their consulting clients will accept nothing less. So was that yes. management consultancy background? I imagine they have to, if they have to put a report in front of the partner, the partner's going to rip them apart, aren't they? You know, Completely. They... So whether it's BCG or Accenture or PCW, these are, you know, these are ladies and, and, and gentlemen that come completely out of a, a consulting background. They're just so prepared and so organized and it's so beautiful to see. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not an age thing necessarily and it's not a gender thing at any level. Um, it just is, they've been taught the discipline to do this. And I, in a way, with almost all other things, I think it's self-selecting. What does that mean? I think it means that if you go into becoming a consultant, a business consultant, or you work for one of these companies, you're predisposed to become being really organized anyway. Hmm. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that with the management consultancy background. I would have thought those are the guys who are the least entrepreneurial, but maybe they're the ones who were entrepreneurial who, you know, had to go and scratch their itch outside of management consultancy. Right, but does it mean maybe that our perception of what a consultant is, what someone who goes into management consulting is, just because they're organized doesn't mean they can't be creative and entrepreneurial? Yeah, sure. Right, doesn't mean they have a preconceived notion about that person being sort of like robotic in their their approach. Anything is really just an organizational thing as opposed to sort of an idea thing. Yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, I think I've found over time that some of these people are really creative as well. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, the management consultant has given them the skills, right? And it's giving them a really good base to play from. Yeah, exactly. And, and the other thing they don't do is they don't wait until the last minute like some of these other right. founders. And the other really interesting thing, right, is it's like going to a doctor, right? You've had some pain for five years. You finally go to the doctor and the doctor's like, well, you've got this you know, debilitating disease and you have six months to live. Yeah. And you blame it on the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> What does he know? Well, like, how come you didn't tell me this before? And the answer is, well, how come you didn't come to me before? And every six months when I sent you that thing that says, shouldn't you really be cleaning your teeth or shouldn't you really right. get that checkup and you didn't do it because you thought everything was fine? But that's human nature, isn't it? I mean, that's, I know that's the, the worst part of human nature. You've got that thing that you need to go and see the doctor about, but you just keep putting it off. It's kind of like getting the cap table sorted out, isn't it? Completely. And you've got your wife nagging you. Come on, you go, just go and see the doctor. Just go and get it sorted out. I know it's uncomfortable, but just go and do it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I'm sure some of these founders have their spouses, male or female, saying this exact same thing to them. They're like, oh, look, we'll raise it. It'll be fine. We'll, it'll all take care of itself. In the end, it doesn't. And I've had people really come to me and say, you know, look, we're going uh, to have to cut 50% of our staff. And, and I really was reading somebody the riot act last week and saying, like, why? Can you tell me why you waited so long? Yeah. And the answer was exactly what you just said. Well, I thought everything was going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't it funny? In almost all those situations, when you go and get something sorted out, and that all that sort of fear you have about going and getting it done now, when you get it sorted out, it's so much better doing that almost always works out better doesn't it and your anticipation of what that would be and all the kind of like worry you had about that meeting and that sort of you know going to talk to somebody like yourself and saying actually you know we need to talk we need to sort this out way ahead of time you know how much better that works out in the long term in almost all cases whether it's raising money or going to see a doctor right yeah, I mean, in a way, it doesn't really matter to me. My life philosophy has been developed over time and has been distilled really down to a very simple thing, and that is 
it's binary. I think they should teach a course on this in middle school, in high school, and in college on a mandatory base. And that, and that is, there are things in life that are binary. And what does it mean? It means before you do anything, you're at step zero. You're just at zero. And if you try to get it done, you have the potential to get to one. If you never even attempt it, you're at zero. So your fear is that you're going to go to zero. But the idea is you're already there and you can't go negative, right? So it's the same thing. You go to someone and you want to raise money. I need $100,000. The worst thing that can possibly happen is that they say no. Hmm. In other words, they can't take a hundred grand from you. <laughs> exactly. So you can't get negative. And this is what I've been trying to teach people over time. And that is you have to look at this from a binary perspective. It's zero and one. You're already at zero. At least try to get to one. Right. But it's a very logical way of viewing things when people are irrational and, and emotional. I think the fear of rejection is a, a major barrier, isn't it? Like to go and hustle and get rejected. That's a lot yeah, of – Look, you start, you, you've, you've started businesses in the past, right? I mean, you start new businesses like all the time yeah. and not all of them succeed. And a lot of them start with no. Yeah. Oh, no. you've got to get through the no's. I mean, without no's, there's no yeses, right? Right. So I, this was really interesting, right? Again, same, same group of people. I sat with them last week and I said, okay, look, let's run through this. How many investor meetings have you had and how many potential investors did you talk to? And they were like, oh my God, like an uncountable number. It's yeah. so many. I said, okay, let's write them up on the, on the whiteboard so I can go through and see, do I know them? Do I not know them? And let's see how many there are because if it's only 40, you need to talk to 60 more. Okay. And if it's 20, you need to talk to 80 more. If it's 90, you need to talk to 10 more, whatever it is, but you need to get to a hundred, whatever the number was that we picked that day. And I think it was like 15. Mm. That's not an uncountable number. In other words, if you have like all of your fingers and toes, you can get to that number pretty quickly and not run out of toes. Exactly. So again, just slightly disappointing that they don't come for help until it's too late, until the last minute. Yeah. Well, there you go. But I think that there is a challenge in human nature, and you're sort of unearthing it, is that we kind of gravitate, or we're not we, but to be successful, you have to kind of step out your side, your comfort zone, right? And you've got to do the things which generate business rather than to do the things which are comfortable so it may be easier for that founder to go back and work on updating the product and focusing on the website and all that kind of stuff rather than going out and focusing on one of those three tasks which you talk about raising the money you know talking to people like you talking to investors and so on because that's uncomfortable but that's what it takes right to grow the business you've got to do the uncomfortable stuff yeah it's like when when did you decide that being an entrepreneur did not include a little bit of discomfort right right exactly. I, I don't get it and here's the really funny thing so I actually challenged a um, one of these business founders last week and I said look you you know you've come to me and you said you're running out of money everybody's gonna die right I said look you're not gonna die you're just not gonna die and there's always a way to figure out a solution sure you shouldn't have waited until the last minute but you know your biggest successes globally really have come from people who were like on their last dime and charged it on their credit card and figured out some way because they were committed, right? Mm. They were so sure that whatever they were working on was going to succeed that they went out and got a new credit card. They charged one credit card on the other one and they just figured out a way to get it done. And this person actually got really indignant, really indignant. And they were like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Why? And I, and I said, really? And then I challenge them because they're like, look, you're just a person who's self-entitled and all this other stuff that they were going on about, right? And I said, look, really? Ask me a question. 
But I'll ask you a question. How much have you been paid in the last year? Oh, I paid myself like 1500 bucks a month. And I went back to the same thing. I got paid nothing. Hmm. So when I say this, I know exactly what I'm talking about. And I said to them, have you ever like lived in a car for three months? Hmm. They're like, no, that's insane. I said, okay, because when I had a really decent paying job, I actually had to live out of a suitcase in a car and in the office for almost three months. So don't tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. You lived in a car for three months? Between a car and the tatami room in an office, and no one knows this. Yeah, I did. I love these stories. I did, and no one knows, right? But I like to keep it under, under wraps because, first of all, most people wouldn't believe it. But second of all... You know, I want to be able to use it in the right, in right. The right way to tell the right story, right? Every, here's the other thing, and I don't want to dwell on this for too long. We can talk about this under separate cover. Most people, when they meet you today, presume you always were the person you are today. Yeah. Right? It's what I call the fallacy of now. Right? So whether you're super successful or super poor today, People just presume that's the way you always were. Like no one knows like you used to live in a mansion and have a billion dollars and now like you're destitute or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah. The matter. So what's the, what's the point here? Like when you're raising money, right? Like again, be prepared, ask for advice, take the help that people offer you and please don't wait until the last minute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No? It's great advice. Yeah. Exactly. Be, you know, uh, ego. It's the problem here, Michael, isn't it? I think that's sort of really? the root of all the problem, isn't it? And that that's probably stops people living in the car, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's funny because back then when this was happening to me, I was pretty clear, particularly the car part, because I thought it was so funny. I used to joke around with people back then. Today, most people don't know because that group of friends is different. But it was pretty funny to me because I knew it wasn't going to be that way forever. Right. I just knew it. I knew that that was not the way I was going to live forever, and I'm kind of indifferent to that. Oh, anyway, good. Anyway, let's talk about – I want to do like the reverse of that's a big surprise, right? So normally it's like a sarcastic take on something that someone's trying to do that's never going to work and mm-hmm. it's just not a big surprise that they're kind of selling it as something that is going to work. So I like to post things to my Facebook account, to my LinkedIn account and I did something last week, right, for a, a new venture capital company that we may have mentioned. It's called Cocoon Capital and I posted it under the um, under the guise of – this team is really good, and I want to name them, right? Will, Will Klipkin, Michael Blakey, um, and their partner, Montita McCooley, right? The three of these people are really extremely successful um, investors. They make five investments a year. And when I posted about it, again, I didn't say much except, you want to know really good investors? Take a look at this team. Hmm. That was really it. And this has gotten the most views and the most engagement for anything I've ever posted on LinkedIn. And again, it's not a big surprise. What does it mean? It means the region and the people that are looking around this region are really looking for people that do their investment job well. And I think the point of this is it's not a big surprise that people just want to be associated with a team that have been really good, have a track record of over 20 years of great investments and want to invest, like they said, in five companies a year and really give them the attention that they need from an entrepreneurial standpoint and a help standpoint. And it was really obvious to me that once you posted it, it was like flies to light. People wanted to flock to this mm. because they see so little of it on a day-to-day basis. Really great investors in the region investing at this stage. 
these are really great people. And I was just happy that people noticed and paid attention to it. But again, it's not a big surprise that people want to see this because they see so little of it. So these guys from the offset, without knowing too much about them, from the outside, they look a bit like the uh, benchmark guys, right? They're quite small and lean and they're focused on a small number of investments with a small team. Is that sort of, is that kind of why you're attracted to them? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, if you go and you do a little bit of research on them, you know, they're, they're abandoning, it says, at least the article says they're abandoning their traditional approach. And to me, it's actually moving back to the traditional approach. They want to invest in only enough companies that they can actually give guidance to and they can actually help. And you know this runs completely counter to my least favorite investors, those that are going out there and just investing in thousands of companies and have no idea what they're doing. Right. Who were mentioned last week, right? So well, we mention it every week because it's just <laughs> obvious. And again, when you're in a developing um, ecosystem, the, the people that stick out are the really best people and the really worst people. Right. Right. So are, um, they, are these guys... You said that they're going back to the traditional approach. Would that be the traditional VC approach? Is this what VCs used to be like 20, 30 years ago? Sure. I mean, the people that originally invested in Apple Computer or in Cisco right. or, or Sun Microsystems, right? The investors, it was their money and they went and paid a lot of attention to these companies because that was the best way to help them grow, hmm. right? They weren't taking necessarily a portfolio management view. They were taking an individual view on each one of these companies. And their expectation was back in the day that they weren't in the movie business. They were in the investment business and they wanted to make reasonable and considered decisions about whom they invested, in whom they invested, and help those companies along the way. You know, Benchmark continues to do this. They don't raise multi-billion dollar funds. They raise 300 to 500 million dollar funds. Being the biggest and being the most prolific is not necessarily the way to be the best. Hmm. We've been over this before. And I think this is a great embodiment of that philosophy. They, can, they may argue with me that maybe I misperceive their business, but I don't think that's the case. Um, I, I've spoken to Michael Blakey on the phone. He's extremely intelligent, highly considered. I've known Will for four or five years, and I've spoken to him in person multiple times, and I've met Montita as well. She's very smart. And they're very focused on what they're doing and doing it well. So very impressed across the board. And again, not a big surprise that people are going out and paying attention to them. Well, that's good they news. Deserve they deserve it. If you were to compare them to a well, a standard VC today, are they the same in terms of? Are they different in the setup with the limited partners and general partners? Is that the same? Or is it just a kind of? Is it just a, a smaller scale of what we have today in VCs? I think it's more than that. So the scale to me doesn't really matter. I think the way they've organized their business, at least from what they've um, you know, released publicly, is that they have a certain amount of money to invest in companies. They want to do five companies a year. They want to have a little bit of money left over to invest to follow on so that they can help. From a seed stage investment, they're not looking to syndicate deals. They're looking to take the whole thing. And the reason why is because there are multiple reasons why, but one of them is that they want to be able – they don't want to have the noise of other small investors out there right? It's complaining or, or giving non-useful information or non-useful advice to their companies. They'd rather take the whole seed round and, and make sure that their companies actually grow properly using the 30 or 40 years of experience that they've had in both investing and building companies to do that. And some of the newer VCs don't have the experience but feel like they can still give advice. And I think they want to remove that as a possibility. So they're much more likely to take a full round even at the seed stage than some other companies who like to syndicate because they don't know how to manage the risk and they don't want to manage the risk, but this team knows how. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so it's very different in that sense. And I think also most of the small funds, right? So this is a has announced a small amount of money, but I wouldn't call it a micro fund. I think they've just basically said, here's the amount of money we're going to invest at this stage. But if we need more money, we can go back to our limited partners and get as much as we need. And I think that's a better way to do it. So this is kind of a, a new development in Southeast Asia. This is probably the best new fund that's been announced in the last five years as far as I'm concerned. That's yes. Good. Well, I'm glad we, we are devoting the surprise section to something positive. Yeah, I don't want to get a. I don't want to get the reputation of just like taking yeah. the piss up and always being like the negative guy in the room because that's actually not who I am. It's just that there's so much shenanigry going on. Right, right. I wanted to point out something that I thought was really fabulous. Well, that's good because what we need to see is more of this kind of, not a micro fund, but a smaller fund which is a lot leaner. But the they have these kind of partners behind them. Absolutely. And less of the other stuff. Absolutely. Which shall, uh, you know, you just have to go back and listen to the other episodes and find out who yes. we're talking about, right? Yes, you can see the difference. And I think these guys are going to make a big difference as well. These guys and gals will make a big difference for sure. Cocoon Capital. Yeah, I like them a lot. Yeah. Good. And what's their backgrounds, these three guys? Well, so Michael, Michael Blakey is an investor and entrepreneur. He's, he's English and he's been doing this for over 20 years. He's had you know, some good exits, some great investments and built some of his own companies. Will is famous for um, you know, building a company and I believe selling it to Yahoo back in the day. Um, I believe it's public, but the news that I've read said it was sold for four to five hundred million dollars. He was not the only owner, but participating in an event like that teaches you a lot. Yeah. Um, and Montito McCooley is, you know, multicultural, multilingual, a great background in, in investing as well. And she's from the region, right? So she's Thai by birth, but a, a global citizen, and she's incredibly intelligent um, and thoughtful as well. So it's just a fabulous team all the way around. Yeah, yeah. That's good. And do you think they're going to be still doing demo days? I don't think so. <laughs> Just wondering what your thought would be on that. Very funny, but I don't believe that they'll do that. I think the way that they want to do this is just kind of like build their companies, do it in private, and um, and, and do it as, as strongly and as powerfully as they can. But I don't think they're going to be out there making a big deal about it, to be fair. Excellent. Yeah. Good. I like that. Anyway. That's a positive. I think so. Good. All right. Anything else this week, Michael? No, I think that's all for now. You know, again, as usual, I really want to thank everybody that's been listening to us. We see the audience growing, which is really nice. Getting good feedback both on the website but also on our YouTube site. I would say if anybody has any feedback, we'd like to follow up every week. You can tweet me directly at Michael Waits. Please subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on YouTube, and hashtag us Asia Tech Podcast. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.